1: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
0: Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
2: Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes.
3: Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments
1: Coalition. When you realize nobody else cares and you're doing it for yourself, you can listen to yourself and you can like let those obstructions go away.
0: I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. You probably know Sam Lipsight as a much-celebrated writer of novels and story collections like The Fun Parts, The Ask, Hark. He is also the former frontman of a small but influential noise punk band called Dung Beetle. James Murphy of LCD Sound System was their sound guy in the 80s. Sam wore capes on stage and went by the name Sam Shit. He drew from that era in his life to write his latest novel, No One Left to Come Looking For You, which came out in December. No One Left to Come Looking for You is about a young bass player in a band called The Shits. His name is Jonathan Liptak, but he insists that everyone calls him Jack, Jack Shit. It's the 90s in the downtown punk scene, and Jack's bandmate, The Banished Earl, has stolen his bass, probably to sell for drug money, and then gone missing. The Banished Earl is our frontman, our lyricist, and lead screamer, Jack writes. His brief includes but is not restricted to howls, whimpers, Banshee streaks, declamations, provocations, semi-ironic rooster struts, blind dives into the mosh pit, simulated or else revocable genital self-mutilation, and of course, spectacle. Spectacle above all else. Taking refuge in spectacle, and conversely taking refuge in the idea that no one is ever really paying attention to the art you make, is what Sam and I wound up talking about for today's episode. The time he spent away from serious writing, capital S, capital W, in his 20s, the time he spent screaming lyrics no one could really make out, taught him something about freedom from expectation that he's carried into his career as a serious, capital S, and very funny writer. Here's Sam Website.
1: I always wrote as a kid, as a teenager, and I got very serious about it. You know, in college, I was taking workshops, and I really thought that I would, you know, wanted to make a go of it as a fiction writer. In college, I, I sort of had that feeling, but I also sort of, I took a lot of writing workshops and, and read a lot of contemporary fiction and wrote stories and uh, sort of created this identity for myself, a sort of public identity, I would say, among my friends and family as a writer or aspiring writer. Um, and i suddenly i started to feel like expectation from people around me about you know how that was go, how and whether that was going to be fulfilled
0: what did you think the expectations were just i'm just curious what your your notion of the shape of the expectation was at the time
1: well it was like well what are you going to do next on your you know to fulfill your aspiration um what are, you know what are your plans what are your what's your game plan what's your you know how are you going to further your uh, you know your career path that sort of thing and so suddenly the, the you know what, what excited me about writing was was being burdened with this other stuff and then you know i you know it was also being burdened with my own expectations and also i come from a family of journalists and writers and so i i it wasn't all foreign to me I knew a lot about the business. and one of the reasons I kind of instead of you know applying to an MFA program after college, I you know, got a cheap apartment in Providence, and then later a cheap apartment on the Lower East Side and played in a scuzzy rock band, was to avoid all of that shit and one of the great things about I've talked about this before but one of the great things about being in this band dung beetle was the music was so fucking loud nobody could hear my lyrics and i was screaming i was screaming them unintelligibly anyway and that was very liberating for me and i loved it and i also had this feeling of like you know, just make, just do what you want to do and make this, these crazy note sounds that you want to make because n- nobody fucking cares anyway. And that was, that was, uh, how I, you know, I think that in this band, whatever we were, we kind of got to strange, interesting places live and kind of, um, it was exciting. And, and it was exciting in a way that like, a lot of the writing stuff had, had lost its magic for me. After the band was over and that life for me was over and you know, I was, suddenly found myself living back home with my mother who was dying um, and I was taking care of her and working these kind of various jobs as a substitute teacher and other stuff. Um, I suddenly re- realized that I could come back to writing the way I had come to that experience being in this band Dung Beetle, which was to really understand that nobody really cared and that I could just do what I wanted to do. And that even the people who loved me, my friends, my family, and there weren't that many people, but the few people that loved me. They wanted me to be, you know, happy, whatever that means. They wanted me to have health insurance, if that was possible. They wanted me to, you know, be able to Support myself, but they were not waking up in the morning worried about my relationship to the short story. They were not waking up <laughs> in the morning thinking about you know, you know how I was going to negotiate my feelings around realism and postmodernism, and and create something that I could you know stand behind aesthetically. Um, they were not going to worry about. How you know I was going to navigate questions of you know the of art versus commerce as it as it relates to contemporary prose fiction. So all of these things that I thought were these you know about all of these expectations outside of me, just I realized didn't fucking exist, and I could have the same. Freedom that I had had in that band, and I could have it by myself in this room, and whatever happened, happened. And that was, I think, a big threshold for me. So there was a relationship between um, how I approached music and how I came to approach writing. And then around that time, another big threshold was sort of, you know, understanding that and realizing it was just for me, and that whatever I did was going to be just for me. And, um, and if other people liked it, that was great. And I wanted other people to, to, to get pleasure and excitement and, uh, enjoyment and interesting, uh, emotional, intellectual experiences from my work. But, um, in the end, I realized that like, if I didn't do it, the world was still going to turn. And so nobody, again, you know, nobody cares. So just do what you want to do.
0: How old were you when um, your the music part of your professional life ended? When you went home
1: to live well, with your I would, mom? I would, I would never. I would. I would never uh, call the musical part of my life professional. That's for sure. Okay. Um, the music but, part uh, of uh, your creative life,
0: when your music yeah. era ended. How old were you?
1: When when was the day the music died? Is yeah. That when when um, did that happen? <laughs> uh, I guess it was around twenty. 20, uh, just about to be 25, maybe 25.
0: The reason I'm asking is because I think there's this, there's something familiar about what you're describing, which is that for sometimes when very, you know, promising, promising young people, uh, in quotation marks, come out of college, there's like, actually those first years out of college feel like the scariest, most existentially burdened years because you have now the 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 work of becoming extraordinary as you have always you imagined that you would be um and that that process of coming to realize that it's okay also just that, that actually adulthood and working life and creative life included is just
3: Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big-box retailers, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them
0: to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Making stuff that it's that actually, actually, nobody is necessarily waiting around for you to be extraordinary and that yeah. you likely won't be extraordinary <laughs> seems like an early yes, 20s, absolutely. like an early 20s existential crisis for sure.
1: I mean, in some ways, I think you're lucky if you have it. Um, I didn't once meet a therapist who specialized in people in those people in their early to mid 20s who have jumped through all these hoops and then have no idea you know who they are and what they are and have you know existential collapse i wasn't like that i kind of knew what i wanted or who i was or on some level i guess i didn't really know who i was nobody does but i i knew kind of what i wanted to do at that at that point but um it uh yeah i think that, that i think you're you're uh describing it quite well and I think I think it is common I think this for me it was how it related to the making art specifically some ways it it later would go on to influence my writing but at the time um it felt diametrically opposed because it was not a it was sort of in some ways the opposite of craft um because at least when we started because when we started nobody could really play our play their instrument that well um and i never really played it i was just a kind of screamer and i learned enough guitar to write some songs but i didn't never felt even competent enough to play guitar on stage um and so it was you know it was all about kind of it was the music itself was very raw and loud and expressive and then there were a lot of like kind of arty ideas wrapped around it because we were kind of you know basically art punks and so uh it did feel diametrically opposed at the time to uh, what I was seeing as, you know, a kind of a more a more staid craft oriented um, MFA approach to to making art. In my mind, in, late, in retrospect, I realized that I was full of stereotypes about all of those things. But um, that's what it felt like at the time. And maybe it also felt, though, more, more in, in line with certain more kind of avant-garde writing traditions that I'd been excited about in, in college. You know, when I, when I was in high school, I was, you know, I wrote, I read like, so while I'm in high school, I read like every copy of The New Yorker ever, <laughs> and, and, and only the fiction. and. Um, and fashion and and kind of make myself into like a kind of high school achiever or something, um, and and win a lot of awards. I'm a, I become a presidential scholar in the arts. You know, I'm like it's and I feel like I've mastered this this form or I'm like really good for a high school writer, and to the point that like. I, I think I mentioned this once in an interview but like to the point that some some of my stuff got to like a major agent and I got in touch you know while I was like a freshman in college he called my dorm and was like I want to you know let's get this going I want to see more stuff and um, and it was and I knew what I I knew what I was writing was kind of in this in this uh mode that was you know looked like what the big short story collections of the time looked like and had the had the tone, and I, I kind of had mastered this thing, but it didn't really feel organic to me. It just felt like I had learned this trick. And so then in college, I think that I you know got very much into uh, more postmodern stuff, more deconstruction stuff, um, took a lot of semiotics classes, read a lot of uh, more avant-garde fiction, and wrote this like crazy experimental novel for my senior thesis. And sent it to the agent sort of as like, yeah, here, you want my stuff? Here's my stuff. Um, Which was like completely different than what, you know, he had seen before. And they were like, ah, uh, no thanks. And it was kind of my, you know, it was, it was both, it was, I felt it as a, as a sort of like, well, you know, I'm doing the real thing now, but it also felt like, you know, I had to now plunge into the opposite direction from whatever it was that had gained me that, that bit of uh, approbation in the beginning. And so that that flung me into this other stuff. And I think that like, but basically there was like narcissism in all of it. It was like, I know this is getting a little convoluted, but I'm trying to make it clear that there was this kind of narcissism in, you know, people care about what I'm going to write. People, People are looking to me. I need to, you know, take the next step. I need to fulfill my promise. You know, am I going to be a realist? Am I going to be, a you know, an experimentalist? And this is all this shit swirling in my head. And the the realization that nobody cares was the thing that finally freed me of that. Um, this kind of ridiculous self-involved swirl.
0: Yeah, that what I was going to like point out is that I'm sort of hearing that there was like the phase of your younger writing life that was like, I am going to be great by by traditional means, by making myself like the 17-year-old cheever. And then immediately, subsequently, the, oh, no, now I need to make myself great. I need to be unique, right?
1: Or Yeah, or like I'm going to be Burroughs or whatever it was. Yeah. So um, either way, it was a trap. In the end, I ended up doing something that had nothing to do with like these literary traditions. I was doing this very weird shit on stage um, that was more kind of just performance art. And um, was more about me, kind of crying and, and writhing around, and um, <laughs> and going out into the audience and trying to, you know, gently stroke the cheek of the toughest-looking homophobe in the audience. That sort of thing. Um, I, it was so it got beyond these these other kinds of gestures or these other kinds of you know thoughts about what I was doing as a writer. Because it was no longer about that, really, and so that helped work it out of my system. Um, and the way I think, and then, and then when I when it was over, what I discovered was, oh, um, now when I'm alone in a room again, I realize that I actually get a lot of, I get a lot of joy writing sentences and being in language and and using and using these sentences to propel narratives, and I actually just want to be doing that. The way the scene ended was, uh, you know, the usual ways with people, you know, resentment, fights, drugs, dissolution, loss of faith. You know, the way many things end.
0: Yeah, that feels like the that feels like the, the real full circle moment of coming back and realizing, like, oh, I just like to write a sentence. You know, like well, it. it started well, from it. there and then it got su- super complicated and then came back to that same
1: place. That's exactly how I would, how I would think about it, or how I do think about it. Um, I got back to the joy I had when I was a little kid, just, you know, writing stories. And, and that was the like, oh, nobody cares whether I'm doing this or not. And, and I love, and I'm just going to do this. That's, and that's my point is sort of, I can, I'm doing this for me because I enjoy it. And because that's where my, uh, those are the moments where, you know, time and anxiety fall away and I'm playing and that's everything.
0: Yeah. I mean, how is it easy for you to keep that kind of purity of purity of intention also as a person who's who's who, who you didn't go on to just you know like go on and be an insurance claims adjuster who like purely writes for pleasure you write you know also for i should have your job. i should have <laughs> do you mean that
1: I, sometimes yeah <laughs> um
0: because that's you know that's a, a, the mantra like nobody cares is a is a good and useful mantra though. I imagine some people would maybe find it depressing, but I'm with you in finding that like that, that must feel really freeing. But also when you go on to, to make a career out of that same craft, like it isn't, it isn't actually technically true that nobody, nobody cares. How do you like, what's the, what's the, what are the mental gymnastics around that?
1: Um, I don't know if it's mental gymnastics. I think that I just, uh, I think that I accept that now I've written seven books and that there, there are some people who are interested who, you know, like to read my stuff and are interested in seeing what I do next. But even they're not waking up worried about whether I'm going to write another book or not either. Um, and so it's really it's kind of the same. And there is an aspect to it where I will say to my and I think this helps. Stop thinking about your career. Don't think about a career. Just think about the next sentence and this book. And this could be the last thing you write. This sentence, this story, this novel, this could be the last thing. And so you're kind of holding two ideas in your head at once. You want, yes, you're trying to you're trying to create a life where you can have the space and time to make a body of work. But you're also understanding that like every sentence you write might be your last. Yeah. You you are trying to. Have a life where you can create a body of work. What you can't do is, and what I would never, what I always, you know, make sure that I don't do or steer away from, is start having like big plans about like, well, there's this book, and then there's the next book, and the book after that, and then there's the other one I'm going to write, and and I'm this great thing I'm not going to use here. I'm going to save that for the other book, and so um, that kind of planning and forecasting, at least for me, has always been detrimental. Just stay and stay in what you're, where you are, and, and understand this could be it. So, you know, don't hoard. Just pour everything into it. Don't, don't, don't have, don't hoard things for careerist reasons. Like, um, like this would work great in, in this thing I'm writing, but I'm saving it for you know the second book in the trilogy.
0: That brings us to, you know, to this book, which feels so, so tied up in this conversation we're having. No one left to come looking for you. Why was this the book that came up now? Presumably, if it's, if it's sort of like, I'm going to devote myself fully to every next thing that presents itself, where did, why was this the one
1: for right now? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I think that I was, um, I always knew I was going to write about this time, and I have in, in some stories and obliquely in, in earlier stories, then a little more directly in some other things, but never, never gave it the full treatment. You know, it's funny, when I was playing in the band, my father, you know, who's, who's not a fan of the music, <laughs> said, uh, well, at least maybe you'll write about it someday. So, uh, you know, he was right about that. Uh, I was, you know, I think that I had just finished, you know, I was, the last book was a book called Hark that I'd published in 2019 and I'd worked six or seven years on that book and, um, taken a lot out of me and it had been a, a book, an ambitious book with a lot of different, uh, perspectives in it, and, you know, uh, different characters. And I knew I wanted to write something that was tight and focused and took place over limited amount of time and I also just really got to you know I was and it was the pandemic it was I guess it was a little before the pandemic really hit I guess I started it maybe in the fall of 2019 and um, I was just sort of I'd re- recently turned 50 I was thinking about the past a lot. I was thinking about, you know, we'd had the the 2016 election and we were kind of, you know, coming to the next towards the next election. Um and I was thinking about New York back in the early 90s. I was thinking about me back in the early 90s. And I always knew that I would write about this time, but I never, never really understood how. And then um And then I was thinking about a story I was thinking about a story I'd written a while ago in which a character steals his roommate's base to sell for drugs and i I started to think about how I'm always I, you know in the past I always you know made it a sort of badge of honor that I was going to write from the perspective of the unlikable character, you know the guy who, who does the wrong thing and the bad thing and still try to make the reader invest emotionally and um but then I started to think, well, I, you know, and also I was that guy. I mean, I was the guy that took the bass. <laughs> 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 but I started to feel bad for the, you know, the victim, <laughs> the, 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 one who, the, the one whose bass is stolen, you know, in all, in all aspects of, of that situation. And so I began to be kind of interested in a character who's, you know, not the guy causing the problem in the band, the guy who's trying to hold it all together um the earnest guy who who really believes as we all did in this project you know the some of the content was soaked with irony but the the truly ironic thing was how earnest and passionate we were about doing this band and 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 making this art and having these shows at any rate i became interested in that character and i remember i I was just trying to find I couldn't find a you know we were talking before we started recording about finding a room of one's own I really was having trouble finding a space to write at that point and I remember I had this notebook and these weird little cheap fountain pens I'd found online and I took 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 some of them out to this park like at a, you know on the on the Hudson River around 137th Street there were these picnic benches and I would just sit there and write in this notebook, and I just started writing these sentences about, you know, I had the idea that the guy would be called Jack Shit, and that his roommate would steal his bass, and that's all I knew, and so I just started with that first sentence. The day after I decide I'm Jack Shit, the banished Earl steals my Fender jazz bass, and then I just went from there, and the thing kind of unfurled in, this, in these notebooks, and, um, and that's, that's how it started.
0: You said something a minute ago that really feels like it encapsulated the what made this book so funny to me as I was reading it, which is the, the, juxtap- the, the juxtaposition of how so much of the ethos of the music that's being made in the shits and in their scene um, is about everything kind of meaning nothing or being fucked up or there being no stakes, and also the stakes being so incredibly high and aesthetic and political purity being of utmost importance. There's this like, everything means everything and everything means nothing um, desperation (laughs) in these characters that makes them do and say incredibly sincere, incredibly absurd things
1: yeah and well, that's like really dangerous think. things <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what i that, and I think that's what I wanted to capture. i you know in my band, there was a you know there was a meltdown that almost destroyed the whole band because one night at a show, one of us broke character to ask the audience if they'd seen this bag that had some of our equipment in it. you know. And that seems like, who cares, right? But to us, that was the end of the world. That was catastrophe because, you know, I mean, there's a whole bit in the book about, you know, the, the importance of the fourth wall. Um, and this sort of laid back, easygoing, reaching out into the audience, pretending like we're all, you know, in this room together was, was uh, anathema to us. So, um, yes, these characters and i guess we did and you know on a certain level i still do care to an absurd level about ridiculous things but sometimes that's i think how you can get yourself to do what you need to do
0: well right i mean i'm thinking about the fact that most of the of the what you would say maybe is like the the most elevated experiences of theater that you've ever seen like really rely on everyone buying into a set of assumptions that are quite ridiculous, which is that we're all going to agree yeah. that, you know, like that, that is kind of the, the, buy, the, the ground level buy-in required for most art, for most great art to happen too.
1: Right. What, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, yes. And I think that like there was there, the, the radical, I guess what I'm also getting at is, the, you know, the the radical gesture of breaking the fourth wall became so commonplace that to, to these characters, it was about finding that 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 magic again that you're talking about that that suspension of disbelief that that um, that buy in that uh and that and creating that barrier again to so that so that the artistic moment can can occur. It's in the worrying about the stuff that that most people would tell you don't not you know not to worry about it, on the level of syntax, on the level of diction, on the you know it's that now it's that, um. It's a kind of. Uh, I guess it's I guess it's a sort of uh. Constant revising. It's um, the fiddling, the anxiety that, you know. One could have found a, a better sonic relation in a sentence. Um, uh, it's seeing all the, like, you know, reading something you've written and published and seeing all the missed opportunities, you know, and, tr- and striving ever more. And, you know, at a certain point, you're the things that you, you know, hear or don't hear are, you know, only come from having read the sentence a hundred times and nobody else is going to do that.
0: Right. It's the like but. caring, <laughs> right. The like caring too much or too much, except it's, it's exactly how much you have to care. Nobody else has to care that yeah. much,
1: but you do. Right. And everyone, you know, and always be, everyone will say, you know, hey, perfection's the enemy of good or whatever that is. Um, as you're like trying, you know, as you're killing yourself. Um, but you, you know, there's the part of you that says, fuck that. Um, And yeah, you do, you care too much and you have to, and then, and then, and then in the end, you know, my favorite line is, uh, about all this is that Charan line about, you know, you never finish anything. You just turn away in disgust. Um, and I think it's, that's the disgust is the realization that like, it's never going to be, it's never going to be good enough, no matter how much you try. Um, but you still have to do, you still have to try. And you know that's something that I always I talk about when I teach it's sort of like a short story. You should be able to manage every word. Like you should actually like by the end of writing a short story, at least for the you know for a little little while, for a few moments, you should actually kind of know where every word is in that story. You can't do that in a novel or a book. You can't you can't be manage every word in a book, but you should try. And in the trying, you'll get somewhere. Pretty, you'll get pretty far. And so I think, and then and then again, like the absurdities that you're talking about, some of it is just that tyranny of small differences. It's, you know, I look back now and say, why did I hate that band so much? They were fine, you know? But but at the time, and it was funny, I was emailing with uh, someone who was, I was emailing with someone who had about this book. He liked the book far more, you know, this was a guy who actually was a, a major figure in, in music. But he was saying how it was uh, Dean Wareham from Galaxy 500 mm-hmm. and Luna. But he was saying, you know, he remembered back in the day when you were in a band it was like being in a little gang and you just like no matter what the what you know what the objective uh, this is not what he said, but this is my reading of it. What your what your objective sense of what the of the music of other people was, like, you know, you had to sort of hate those other gangs on some level. So, you know, there was this tyranny of small differences because this band, like, plays it this way, or this band, you know, is a little too poppy, or this band's trying to, you know, do this, and and that's, you know, aesthetically wrong. And it's hilarious that you care about that stuff. But it's also important that you care about that stuff. And I guess that's what the book's about.
0: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it sounds like the, the, the philosophical... Journey you're describing is from is going from one kind of caring too much or caring too much about one category of thing that you deem to be fundamentally ultimately unuseful to making peace with caring too much in a different in a in a different way or like about process um, rather than about I don't know audience or expectation
1: from caring too much about. Not only audience expectation from, but about anything else, about how your work compares to other work, about what else is, about the state of the art, about what, you know, where you stand in relation to, you know, other people doing similar things, all of that stuff. Not just the expectation about your career, but just about like, you know, where you stand in the field and not caring about any of that, but being incredibly, uh, Attuned and attentive to the point of madness about your own work. That's, I guess, that's the shift.
0: Does it feel like? Is that what it felt like
1: writing this book? Well, this is the other irony: is like, you know, if you if you really are like that, a lot of the time you do get these, you do get moments of flow where it's not. It's, I'm. We're making it sound like it's, you know, you're pulling your hair out all the time and and gnashing your teeth, and it's not like that at all. If you're really practiced at this and you're doing it for real you get you get flow and it's it's all ha- it, it, it happens and then you can revise and you can change and you can manipulate and so forth but um you're just inside your 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 song
0: To say, I was I was imagining that there was going to be plenty of gnashing of teeth in general in in all in all creative processes that have such such good output as yours. But I'm happy to hear it's more flow than gnashing.
1: Well, there's plenty of gnashing, but I think that like the the then you you do the gnashing so you can get to the flow. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, you know it's not fair because the stuff you know the, unlike maybe other other situations you know the the more you you gnash your teeth the harder you work that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get your best sense but i think that that agitation is to get yourself into the place where you can relax because that's really and if you, if you can do that without Nashing your teeth, all the more power to you. But I think that um, if you're truly within within what you're doing, there um, there doesn't have to be all. It doesn't have to be all angst. It's just uh, it's just focus. It's attention. It's it's staying with your object. It's not evading. It's um, and then and then playing. And it's, it's, and so then you're, you're kind of, you know, you're listening to yourself and that's really, that's really what it is. And that's once you really, and again, to like circle back once more, like when you realize nobody else cares and you're doing it for yourself, you can listen to yourself and you can like, let those obstructions go away and sort of let, let things, let the utterance come through. And then, then you can put on later after you get those early drafts, you can put on your you know your critical hat and that's when you can do more gnashing and and anxious editing and changing things around but you have to like also respect what happened initially
0: thresholds is produced by drew broussard music and editing by laura Faye osherwood of arthur moon our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at Lit Hub Radio. You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website. This is thresholds.com. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week.